Hi, I'm Shireen, and my guest today on the Brandtune podcast is Chris West, the founder of Verbal Identity, specialists in helping brand leaders align their team in one voice. His clients include the biggest names, such as Alphabet and General Motors, as well as startups in data science, fintech and beauty, and some famous UK names, including John Lewis, Mulberry, Vauxhall. At the core of his work is getting the writers in a company to use one brand voice. His company has developed a simple, memorable framework that does just that, inspiring and aligning writers rather than hemming them in with more rules. The framework is included in his recent number one best-selling book, Strong Language. I'm delighted that Chris will be delivering a 10-minute masterclass for us on One Brand, One Brand Voice, how to align everyone in your company with the One Brand Voice. So welcome to the Brandtune podcast, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's, do you want to share your screen to share, to do this masterclass? Absolutely. So I'll share my screen now and I'll start sharing with rather an odd image. Uh -huh. but, uh, there's a story behind this. Mm. Uh, a lot of people in the design world, in the professional services world, they're very aware, of course, of how important it is to control the visual identity of their brand, making sure that wherever their brand turns up, whichever channel, whichever format, it looks consistent, recognizable, and that visual identity in some way creates differentiation, creates value. And what I'm particularly interested in and what my business verbal identity specializes in is helping brand owners and designers create that differentiation, create that value through language. And so that's why I love starting with this example of two kinds of oat milk. Shall I dive in and start talking about that? Yeah, looks okay. very interesting. Well, that's very kind of you. So if like me, you're one of those dairy dodgers, and I don't know if you are, Shireen, but you know, increasing number of people seem to be not having milk in their morning coffee, not having milk in their cereal, whatever. And so those a lot of people are turning to oat milk. Now, I can say as an oat milk drinker, I've never been able to tell, taste the difference between one brand of oat milk and another brand of oat milk. And probably no surprise because oat milk is really just oats in water. So oats in water versus oats in water, who's ever going to be able to tell the difference? Now, what's interesting for me and why I love this example so much is that there are two quite well-known brands of oat milk. And as I say, they're both oats and water, not are they both, you know, the same taste to me. I'm sure some people can taste the difference, but not only are they both tasting the same to me, they're sold in exactly the same packaging, these Tetra Packs, and they're distributed through exactly the same channels. So in many ways, why would one be valued or better loved than the other? 
And Rude Health, a few years ago, re quite recently actually, got a valuation for their company, which was around about 70 million. That's great actually for oats in water. And the way they talked on their, on their packaging about their brand was to talk about rude health is when you do yoga and climb trees and very, in some ways, obviously the things around health. Okay. But what I find super interesting is the valuation that was put on Oatly, which is the other major brand of oat milk that I see and which I am actually a huge fan of. Now, as I say, it's oats and water like Root Health and Oatly is sold in the same packaging as Root Health. And they're sold, you know, shoulder to shoulder in the chiller cabinet at my local supermarket. So really you would expect them to have the same kind of valuation. And the question I often ask when I do a workshop in a company or in an agency is, so what do you think the valuation of Oatly was when they were IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange? Do you think as a relatively new younger challenger to Root Health, they would perhaps be, have a, value, a valuation less than Root Health, so naught to, let's say 100 million, you know, maybe, maybe they're the same. Or do you think perhaps they could have created a slightly higher valuation? Well, here's the amazing thing for me and for a lot of people, which is oats and water versus oats and water, same packaging, same distribution. The only real difference that people were noticing and commenting on was the language on the packaging. And only when it was valued, when it was IPO'd, it wasn't in the region of 0 to 70 million, 70 to 100 million. Its valuation was actually quite a stunning 13 billion for oats and water sold in the same packaging, distributed through the same channels. And so I love showing this example because if you can't taste the difference and if you, it one isn't more accessible than the other, it's the language which is making the difference. Language is hugely valuable. Language is valuable when it creates a difference for a brand and when it's consistent. And that's what I think an increasing number of designers, company founders are discovering with, or they're, they're coming to this conclusion as well, which is that when you have more channels than anyone's ever had before, and language is so prominent in those channels, and of course you have clients and consumers who really want to actually be in a dialogue with brands they love, you have to have great language. You have to be able to talk to them as your brand consistently and with differentiation. That's the wonderful thing that's happening in language at the moment. So then the question is really, for a lot of designers, for a lot of agency owners, a lot of business founders is, how can I brief the writers better? How can I encourage creativity? And when it comes to the work, how can I judge it better? They're, they're three interrelated challenges, how, how to improve the briefing, the creativity and the judging of copywriting. Now, the example I love to do in a workshop and which we're doing this mini workshop now, about how language works and how you can agree a framework with your clients, with your agency, with your copywriting teams, really comes down to this idea that language works in a very subtle way. And we're all tuned to it because we're a language animal. And actually once you understand how language is working, then suddenly it makes the briefing, the creativity and the judging of work uh, a lot easier.
So the example I love to show is Ferrari versus Mini. Now, I'm not, I must admit, and Shireen, I don't know if you are, I'm not a car nut. Uh, so, but even so, I can tell the difference between a Ferrari and a Mini. And I think many, if not most people, could tell the difference between a Mini and a Ferrari, just by looking at them. And actually, even by their sound, you know, if a Ferrari goes past one way and a Mini goes past the other way, it's not just the visual identity of Mini and Ferrari that's being carefully controlled. It's the sound and it's everything. So the question then is, have Mini and Ferrari really paid the same attention to their language so that you can immediately identify and get values out of their language for one brand versus the other? And the answer I'd love to say is yes. And if I can continue this workshop, I, I can prove it, which is I would love to show you now, Shireen, two pieces of copy, one written by Ferrari, one written by Mini. And both pieces of copy talk about how their car takes a corner, but both pieces of copy are anonymized. There's no visual cues, there's no logo, there's nothing else. I've chosen the most straightforward font I could find. So I'll put them up on screen now for 30 seconds. And the question, two questions I'd like to ask in fact, First question is, which is Ferrari, which is Mini? That's it. That's the easy question, if you like. And the second question is, how did you know? So if you're ready, I'll show you these two pieces of anonymized copy. Um, for the benefit of people who are just listening and not watching this, is it worth reading these out? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. That's a great idea. So the first piece of copy is this Mini, is this Ferrari? Car Brand X. Here's the copy. Born to corner. Driving a X is a ton of, thing, a ton of fun thanks to its legendary go-kart handling. We could go on about its lightning-quick responses and glue-like grip. Dot, dot, dot. That's car brand X. Here's car brand Y. Proprietary Y algorithms guarantee optimal integration of the electric motor and V12 engine and thereby optimizing dynamic behavior. When the car is cornering, the high curve system keeps the V12's revs up to ensure quicker response times to the accelerator pedal when exiting. The Brembo brakes, which integrate with the energy recovering system, have light calibers with a specific design, designed to guarantee perfect heat dissipation from the new carbon ceramic discs. That's brand copy Y. Most people, when you put that up on the screen, when you read it to them, instantly they will say, they'll be able to answer question one. Yep, first car, car brand X, which started born to corner, driving at X is a ton of fun. They'll say mini, without a doubt. The second piece of copy, which is, much longer, much technologically complicated. Oh, it's quite difficult to read without you know, good breath control. I'm not sure how good a job I made of it. That's got to be Ferrari. That's the easy question, which is many, which is Ferrari. The, the, the interesting question, I reckon, is how comes everyone knows just from the language that one is mini and one is Ferrari? And so there might be answers popping into your head already. Some people will say, oh, um, go-kart handling, that's a particular mini expression. Whereas 
high curves, V12, Brembo brakes, algorithms. That sounds much more like Ferrari. And they're absolutely right. They're picking on particular words, which are more likely to be one brand than the other. Some people will say, you know, X Mini sounds, just sounds more, I know, more fun. And some people say, yeah, but Y sounds much more elitist, technological, um, engineering. And we would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Although those words engineering, technological or something like that might not be actually in the copy, that's the personality of the copy that's coming out from each piece. We're getting a sense of the characteristics, getting a sense of the identity. And then some people will also say, you know what? And they'll say it with a kind of half smile or with a joke and they'll say, you know what? I think Ferrari is just for people who are snobs or they'll, they'll, they, they, want to, they want to make you believe that driving a Ferrari is like an F1 experience. I say, oh, interesting. And some people say, yeah, but the thing with Mini is they want you to know that you can just get in the car and go and it's a great, it's a great laugh. And I say, absolutely. And what everyone does in those comments is they, they identify that in fact, there are three levels of language always operating and are because we're the language animal, we're very subtly picking up these different cues. It doesn't matter whether it's brand language, whether it's this kind of conversation that we have here, or it's a great character in a movie or a TV show. Whatever is written or spoken, it's informed by those three levels. There are those ground level details, the words and phrases we use and don't use, even grammatical structure and sentence length in those ground level details. If you come up to say a thousand feet, then there's that personality that's also working to tell us subtly who said this or who's likely to have said this. And then you go up to 10,000 feet and then you have this sense of an overarching narrative. This is the world we believe in. This is what we stand for. This is what we stand against. So at Verbal Identity, we found this framework to be simple, but so memorable that people can constantly refer to it. And when they're coming to judge a piece of work, instead of saying, I'm not sure it's not quite right, that doesn't really do it for us. What they can actually do with their team or with their client or whoever it is, they can say, look, absolutely, you've got the 10,000 foot narrative. This is exactly who we are. This is the world we believe in. You're, what you've chosen to write about, that's absolutely great. And the world, the picture of the world you're creating, just like Oatley did, that's, that's it, that's us. And they might say, and the personality you've come across you know, technological or innovative or smart or friendly or whatever it is, you know, those two or three, maybe four little value, tonal values, which create a personality, you've got those right. But down on the ground level details, you've got those wrong. And actually that's skewing, that's screwing up everything. Or sometimes people see that one of the, the problem is one of the, one of the other areas. But we would always say, you know, a, a company, is a conversation, a good company is a brand, a branded conversation internally and with, and with um, customers and clients. 
And just as you work hard to make sure it's one company thinking and doing one thing, the language needs to think and do and say one thing. And this framework is brilliantly simple for aligning everyone. So once you've identified what's the 10,000 foot overarching narrative, how does that turn up in our personality? And how does that dictate almost, if you like, what our ground level details are with grammar choices, words and phrases and so forth. Then suddenly you have a framework which is really brilliant, easy to remember, easy to refer to, and you can talk to your teams when you are briefing them. You can address those three levels when they are sitting and they're going through their creative process. You know, they can be refreshed and reminded by those three levels. And actually when you're coming to judge the work, and if it's sign off version one or two, that's great. But if you need anyone to have a rework on it, rather than that terrible moment where you say, look, it's just not us, but I don't know how to make it us. You can say, look, this level is right. That level is right. But would you just have a look, for example, at the tonal values in the personality? And so we often have this little diagram where there's a helicopter hovering somewhere between ground level of 1,000 foot and 10,000 foot. And we just ask people, so if we take the helicopter up to 10,000 foot, what's your worldview as a company, as a brand? What's the world you want to create? And if that's the world you want to create, what do you stand for? And what must you stand against? And that will dictate what you get to talk about and the angle you take on things. Let's bring the helicopter down to 1,000 feet. And what's the personality of your company or your brand? How can you express that in a small number, say three eternal values? And if you come down to ground level, how do you make sure that everyone in the company when they're writing is using the same terminology? They're using enough jargon, not too much or whatever it is. And can you agree to save time at the beginning on certain grammar choices, sentence length and things like that? So those are the three levels that, that make up that framework. And we found it both simple enough to be remembered, but I think also embracing enough to align writers, client teams, uh, anyone that's signing off, brand managers, all of those people in this idea that they can align not just the whole company into one branded voice, but actually make sure the branded voice, wherever it turns up in the different channels, is differentiated, is distinctive, but is consistent. There you go. Great, thank you. Well, my pleasure, thank you very much. So how does um, this fit in for a brand that's just doing its brand strategy, maybe an early stage business? How would they think about this alongside their brand? Other considerations? Well, we see it being used in two different ways. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's being used very early on to define a brand. And that seems to be increasingly so. And I think it's this thing we talked about earlier, which is there are so many more channels that a brand needs to be in. And there are so many more consumers or clients who want to be in a dialogue with you. It's sometimes worth defining your brand using this simple three levels framework for the voice, and then applying that into the channels and giving that as feed and nourishment for other people that are developing other brand assets because it's a very strategic it's a very brand strategic framework mm -hmm. 
and certainly up at the 10,000 foot view when you're answering those questions, you're really getting into the nitty gritty. Sometimes has happened with um, a, couple, a large UK retailer that everyone would know, um, another couple of brands that people would know here in the UK and one in the States. The brand has been defined, the guidelines have been defined and the brand director or the CMO or the founder said, you know what, I'm just not happy how we're turning up in language. And there's nothing wrong with the brand strategy overall. It's just that most people don't have expertise in shaping and guiding and defining language like we at Verbal Identity do. And that's not a big brag. You know, we're, we're a niche within a niche, so there's nothing to be too proud of there. Mm. But that's certainly what I've spent uh, 12 years in this business doing and, and really 30 years of my career doing is, is structuring language and shaping language. So often people will say, look, we've got our brand definition down. We're, you know, we're doing fine in every area. It's just our language isn't turning up very well. So can you build this into our brand strategy document or can you work with our brand designers, which we love doing, um, because my background is in above the line advertising where you didn't move anywhere without your art director really. Mm. Um, so they're, they're really the two two ways that people use this and call on this. Yeah. I'm wondering with Rude Health and Oatly, whether it's about um, Oatly being more sort of aligned generally about what they're doing as a business, which leads to their success. Because quite honestly, I've never read any of the things on their packaging. Um, I don't know. It, are you saying that people will be reading this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's good tracking on that. Oh. And what it's doing, I couldn't say that Root Health is more or less aligned. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as I think, you know, as far as I see in Root Health's um, product range, in its other activity and its promotions, you know, it's aligned. Its view of healthiness mm -hmm. and, and kind of progressive nutrition, if we want to call it that, its view is this is good for your health. You know, you'll notice the benefits in a kind of quite soft, not, yeah, quite soft way. Oatly's equally aligned. It's just Oatly's point of view is we've got to save the earth. And the dairy industry is really, you know, killing, is really affecting the climate mm -hmm. to a large extent. And choosing plant-based foods, including oat milk, is a really uh, serious, important step in contributing to the reduction of impact on climate. So I think they're both highly aligned. I think that it's the language of only which is really doing something to, to help and position to help position the brand and deposition its rivals. And the reason I say that is if you spend time in a supermarket, in a big supermarket, which has got lots of these lovely new products coming onto the shelves, everyone seems to be doing a startup, some funky food product or something, spend a moment lurking in the aisle where some new products are on the shelf. And what you'll see is this moment where beautiful piece of packaging design stops someone mm. and then what do they do they reach out they grab the packet and they turn it around to read whatever's written about it on the back and that's just a commercial version of what we see mm. at art galleries if you walk into an art gallery 
you yeah. walk into the court claw gallery you'll see turner's stunning stunning painting of the shipwreck wow and anyone walking into the gallery is momentarily stopped oh and they want to they want to look at it and what do they do they walk over to it mm-hmm. and then they bend down to the right look away from the painting and they'll read what what the curator has written about it it's this idea that visuals attract verbals engage that we cannot work with just great visuals or just great language actually what makes a brand really stand out compared to anyone else is amazing visuals which are strategically sound innovative and distinctive and really engaging language which is innovative and distinctive and both should be consistent with each other and all the way through the different realizations of the brand yeah well with Oatley's case they've got a more powerful message um, meaning behind them which is that they're about saving the planet whereas rude health probably I don't know what they stand for but just health (laughs) being healthy well so that's interesting you know what is it they stand for is that a failure of strategic positioning or is that a failure if we want to be that way or you know is it something that could be corrected by stronger language Mm. but my feeling is if you're right if you're asking your team to write something Mm -hmm. what you're asking them to do is to change a consumer's mind or engage a consumer's mind and if they've written something and people go "Mm, shoulder shrug yeah whatever Mm. then why did you spend any money why did you spend any time writing it there was no value actually if you're going to write anything you must have a a view of the world you want to create and you must come at this and express this with a strong personality Mm. and you must make sure that the ground level details are reinforcing it so you get the whole team involved you know the when you go into a company how do you work it, it depends whether we're being asked into an agency to work with them or if we're working with a client team and we're very lucky to be working with client teams at FTSE 100 companies big and um, sorry fast growing innovative engineering companies whether they're traditional engineering or whether they're you know data data science beauty skincare startups and so forth and so it really depends what the client's need is but typically they'll say to us look we want to make our language i suppose yeah they'll, they'll say we, we really have three situations one of three situations here one is brand strategy we really don't know what we stand for or what we're trying to do and we don't know how to express it okay so this is a brand much more upstream brand strategy job and we might work with a design agency strategy agency or we might be sitting alongside them already mm-hmm. sometimes they say strategy sorted out um we just need to know how does that turn up in a brand voice and so we have a very good process over something like six to twelve weeks will help create very clear, usable guidelines, tone of voice guidelines, which are somewhere between eight and 20 pages, but they're very practical. They're not theory around language or anything else. They say, you know, this this is the framework. This is our, this is how we turn up on each of those levels. This is how we turn up therefore in different channels and so forth. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the third scenario is a company will come to us and say, Chris, look, we're strategy sorted um even our tone of voice 
it might not be perfectly defined, but it, you know, we know really what's good enough, but um, we just want some help for the copywriters. Maybe they're overwhelmed. Maybe a couple of key people have moved on. Um, maybe it's just one of those things where we all need some refreshment and some stimulation. So can you come in, maybe do some writing, but sometimes do some writing, but sometimes, you know, can you train some of our writers so they're more productive? Mm -hmm. Can you train in the bigger businesses, the copywriters, managers? So again, it's this thing of, can they brief better and can they judge better? Because if they can, then they're radically improving the productivity of their copywriting team. Yeah. So there are three different um, ways that we help generally. Yes, and then the message seeps through somehow. I mean, I'm often curious how messages actually get through to, to me. You know, if I think of a brand like Samsonite, I associate it with quality and but I don't know where I first even heard of Samsonite, how I came across them, why I've got that impression. And it's the same with so many brands. And, I, and, I, and that's the mature way of looking at it, you know, not to say, look, it's, it's all because of digital, it's all because of social, or it's all because of whatever. The truth is, there's a massive ecosystem now mm -hmm. of marketing channels and marketing places and things like that. So a brand does really well when it's not just in one channel or it's not just doing one thing, but, you know, its presence in social media is very clear and well defined is mm -hmm. and that's aligned with its what it's doing in, in more traditional PR and that's aligned with what it's doing in um, you know uh, traditional above the line advertising which is consistent with what the CEO is saying at investor relations meetings which is mm -hmm. consistent with what they're saying in employee values internally and how their advertising roles uh, vacant in the business mm -hmm. because you might for some reason just see something that the CEO has said. Okay, well, fine, you know, and that sinks slowly into anyone's head. And then the next time you might hear something about them on a PR, mm. uh, you know, stimulated piece on the radio and the same message is coming out. Mm. And then actually, for some reason, you see something about them on social media. And again, it's got to be consistent because there is this ecosystem and each part of the ecosystem needs to be consistent with the other parts. Mm. And it's much more like that, these days I think than in my days when I started as a copywriter um, which I loved you know and, and Saatchi's would spend a million pounds just on shooting a commercial tv commercial mm. and it was seen by everyone and actually you know remembered by everyone for 10-15 years but you could do that then and I don't think you can necessarily I don't think you can expect to do that just in one channel today so it's really about turning up consistently in each channel and particularly with the brand voice. Yeah, having real clarity around it. Yeah. So, um, okay, so what resources would you recommend for people who want to dig into this more? Apart well, from your own book? Robert? Well, I'm going to reach out <laughs> since you very kindly mentioned my book and here is my book. Yeah. Oh, it's never going to work. Is it Strong Language? Yeah, I wonder why it's looking fuzzy up there. I uh, who knows? Yes, there we go. Yeah, it, it, there's a focal point on the on the camera, but the book is called Strong Language: mm -hmm. Fastest, Smartest, Cheapest Marketing Tool You're Not Using, which is deliberately provocative because everyone mm -hmm. is using language is using tone of voice, whether they realize it or not. I would say, yeah. but many of us are forgetting about it. So, 
having done this for 12 years and worked with businesses from, you know, really literally two people pre-startup mm-hmm. to Series A funded day science businesses through to famous UK brands like Vauxhall, B&Q, and even global brands, we were invited to go across to Silicon Valley to work with one part of Alphabet on their language. Having done that for over 12 years, then I, I realized that not everyone is ready to dive in. Some people want to read about it, learn a bit more, or they might be a small team. They don't want to bring someone else inside the building. And so every, literally everything I knew about how you create a brand voice was put into the book, Strong Language. Mm-hmm. And not just about the creative or the framework that I've mentioned, but also all the other stuff. About half the book is all the other stuff that we all have to go through mm-hmm. in the real world, which is how do I make a case to the boss that this is worth putting money behind? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I, if we've got a bit of money, where do we start? Because there are some things which are going to have a big impact, but they're impossible to change. And there are some things which are going to have a big impact and they're easy to change. So how do you produce a simple quadrant matrix? So you're identifying which are the quick wins and getting agreement on that. Mm-hmm. How do you audit? I don't like the word audit. I have to think of something else. But how do you really judge? Next book. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. next book. How do you judge where your brand language is compared to you know, other people in your sector or the best in the world? How do you judge how your language is in one channel compared to another? So there's lots and lots of practical examples in the book. And it also talks about if you have one day to do something with your brand voice, how do you spend that day? If you have one week, if you have one month, if you have six months, if you have a year, all those different scenarios, they're provided for it in the book. So I hope that in the book, people can find out pretty much everything they needed which will be wonderful. I get some lovely emails back saying, you know, I've just run the team through this and it's, and it's you know, changed everything immediately. And perhaps there's one question I'm, and I'm really always happy to answer that. So I'll answer questions over on LinkedIn if people okay. want to find me there. I'm Chris West Verbal Identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so on LinkedIn, if they look for Chris West Verbal Identity, they find me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter, of course, but that's not, I don't find that such a great conversational space. Mm. And occasionally people will say, look, uh, come and do a lunch and learn for our, for our agency or Chris, could you come mm. and do a lunch and learn with our creative team and our, our brand or our client? Or I want to get five people together from different businesses because we do this or just come in and, you know, we do this once a quarter stimulation for the writers or for the board. So come in and, and would you come in and do something like that? So in, the, in those different mm. ways, people can suck out of my head the last 12 years of accumulated knowledge so is the business you primarily and then you engage people to help you if needed or it's it's me plus five Uh and the combination of the me plus five plus and the plus plus i'll come to but the five are are basically strategists who could have been writers Mm. or writers who could have been strategists right and then we have baxter who I must reference, who's my uh, operational assistant, who tries to make best use of my time. And then the plus plus that we mentioned is mm-hmm. often our clients will, will say, look, this is great. And we need to get something across the line. We're relaunching the website. 
it's overwhelming for our team of writers. You know, can we boost our firepower with some of your so that so yeah, sometimes sometimes it's me as a writer, but but we have a, a band of writers who will be very reliable and very skilled at adapting to what's yeah. needed. Okay, one last question, which I'm going to ask everyone who comes on the show is, what's the most memorable experience you've ever had with intellectual property law during your years as a branding professional? That's a great question. Mm. So, huh. I don't know if this is really, well, it's, let, me, let me put this in and then we'll think if there's a better answer in a minute, but I used to work at Saatchi and Saatchi mm -hmm. in the mid nineties, which sounds like such a long time ago now, I suppose it is really. Mm -hmm. And Saatchi and Saatchi was so famous. And I moved house in South London and I walked to the end of the road and there was a dry cleaners and they called themselves Starchy and Starchy, mm -hmm. which I loved. I thought it was so funny. And, you know, someone could be really upset at the infringement of trademark or something like that and different to most people Saatchi's I think had a, a view that not all publicity is good publicity but celebration of us and our position and what we've done and uh, and Saatchi's were a very cheeky agency they used to talk about chutzpah so I think if they ever found out about Saatchi and Saatchi I believe they would have looked at it and smiled because it was a recognition of what they'd done as an agency. So does that count as an example? Um, well, if it's the only one you can think of, often people have had made some mistake or been aware of something and they don't want to discuss it, which is why I'm yeah. trying to bring it up because- Well, one of our clients mm -hmm. ended up in a very interesting situation. They were, uh, it, they launched three years previously, mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna. I'm not even gonna say which industry it's in, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. But it was a consumer-facing business, and another consumer brand launched, mm -hmm. which essentially had taken a synonym of our client's brand name, had made significant, taken significant inspiration, if we're being polite. Mm. about the packaging packaging design not only that when we went on this copycats website we'd found that they'd cut and pasted our client's copy mm. to such an extent that they'd forgotten to take off our client's name <laughs> from the copyright at the bottom oh god <laughs> and you mm. think my goodness how can you how, how does that ever happen? Yeah, I, I had a client like that who lost his name, domain names, because he had copied somebody's terms, the market leaders, but he had, hadn't even removed their name. So it was just so obvious. Yeah. You know, that, mm. So, you know, IP is critical to all of us. Yeah. And just knowing a little bit about it can stop you making a silly mistake, I think, but it can also, just knowing a little bit about it, can sometimes stop a competitor in their tracks with you showing enough knowledge that it just makes them pause for a second, I think. Yes. Do you ever get involved in choosing taglines that would be trademarkable? 
taglines, yes, and uh, names, of course, which yeah. you know, are trademark what I believe. Okay, good. Yeah, copywriting, linguistics, it, it's all very uh, useful for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're a tone of voice and copywriting agency and a big demand as people launch more products. Yeah. Is naming strategy and naming, as we call it, naming hierarchies. Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Chris, for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Bye. Bye-bye.